You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Daniela Galarza, the writer behind the Washington Post's Eat Voraciously newsletter, which goes out Monday to Thursdays, offering suggestions for what to cook for dinner. We discussed how she went from pastry kitchens to food media, writing recipes for a broad audience with plenty of substitutions, and walking around Walmarts to see what kind of ingredients are available everywhere. Hi, Daniela. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Alicia. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, a few different suburbs. And my mom immigrated to the U.S. in her early adulthood and my dad from Iran. And my dad moved from Puerto Rico to the mainland in when he was like nine or 10 years old. And they met in Chicago and realized they had, I guess, like they both loved to cook or they both loved food. And so growing up, I ate a lot of both of those cuisines and also a lot of things that they kind of made up together. And then when I started going to school, I started, my brother and I, who's younger than me, started complaining that we weren't eating enough American food. And we, in addition to like, like, you know, I I still like, I, I loved the Puerto Rican food and the Iranian food that I was eating. It's interesting that I As a kid, just wanted macaroni and cheese and like from a box and I don't know, hot dogs and what else? And oh, and like baked pastas. I wanted, I wanted like all of this Italian American food, which was so foreign to my parents. (laughs) And they did their best to try to figure out what we would eat. And sometimes that that was that like manifested in really interesting mashups, like my dad's take on spaghetti and meatballs was spaghetti, like really, really overdone spaghetti in, I think like a canned tomato sauce and then a fried pork chop on top. And (laughs) it would get cut up for me. And, uh, and and that's what, that's what, that's what we, that's what sort of would happen that. Yeah. There was a lot of like translations into American, American food that I ate. Wow. Well, and you've had such a long and varied career in food. So I wanted to start at the beginning. Why food and how did you start your professional career? I don't know how I always knew I wanted to work in the food, in in food somehow, doing something with food. I think I always gravitated towards the kitchen. It wasn't always like a happy place in my home, but I guess I just I just loved eating. I Something I get from my mom that I'm more aware of now is a pretty sensitive sense of taste. And I think that that contributed to my enjoyment of eating different foods and different cuisines, whether I was cooking them myself or eating somebody else's at a restaurant or at their home. And that enjoyment, I, you know, I, I remember my parents, my dad was a bus driver for the Chicago Transit Authority and my mom did many, many different jobs when I was growing up. And it was very clear that both of them worked to work to pay the bills. 
And I came away from that experience never wanting to work a nine to five and never wanting to work to just pay my bills. I wanted to figure out how I could work, how I could do something I loved and make make a living out of it. And initially that was me wanting to go to culinary school. And I had, you know, a lot of notions of like, oh, I'll open a restaurant or, oh, I'll be like a TV chef, like Julia Child, like I you know, whoever I watched on PBS growing up. And my mom had these very strong feelings about like, oh, you want to be, you want to cook for people? Like, you know, in, in some cultures that, you know, there's, there's a stigma, there's like a class attached to that kind of service industry work. And I remember being so puzzled by that when, when I would hear that from family members, just not understanding it at all until I went into working in restaurants and saw how restaurant people are treated. Saw how you were treated if you work in the back of house at a restaurant in general and the assumptions that are made about you. And then and then I understood her words a lot more, but I still had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> well, you know, so you started out in kitchens, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I didn't answer the second part of your question. <laughs> yeah. So I started out, I started out working in restaurant kitchens. I started, my first job was working at a, at a local bakery selling the bread. And then second job was at Williams-Sonoma as a food demonstrator in, in the local mall. And mm. when I went to college, I worked in local restaurants to help pay for books and, and lodging and that's when I started getting into pastry. I found some local pastry chefs that took me under their wing and I, I got really excited about it and was a pastry assistant for a really long time. And then after I finished college, I studied food history in college and found a number of like really great professor mentors while I was there who encouraged me to stay on the scholarly food path. They, they thought I would become like them and I would teach food history or food anthropology. And then I would write books about my research. And I think I just, that whole time I was just like, no, I'm going to go be, I'm going to go become a pastry chef. Like I'm going to get this degree. I'm going to cross this off my list. And then somehow I'm going to figure out how I'm going to pay this, these student loans back by working in restaurant kitchens. And so after I graduated, I went to uh, the French Culinary Institute in New York City and I had to work full-time while I was doing that. So I, the way I found a job in New York was I just like read, I started reading all of William Grimes's restaurant reviews and looking for the ones that mentioned pastry chefs. And I <laughs> cold called all of those restaurants and just said, I'm moving to New York City. I need a job in a restaurant kitchen. This is my experience. Are you hiring? And like most of these places hung up on me until one of them didn't. And I mean, I don't know if they still do trails, but I did like a two day trail where I worked for free for two days and they observed my work and hired me. Thank God I had a job. <laughs> I could move to New York and I could go to culinary school. And I finally thought I had found my place. You know, it's like I graduated college and I found what I was, what I've always wanted to do. And I did it. And then I became, I was, I worked in pastry kitchens in New York and went to France and studied a little bit more in France and then got offered a job doing product development in Los Angeles. And I like never wanted to leave New York, but I, this was a really good opportunity. And it was also an opportunity for me to finally have health care benefits, which I hadn't had before. <laughs> As you know, they're very rare in the restaurant industry. <laughs> I went and did that. And then the recession hit and this company basically went under. And a friend of mine at the time said, have you thought about writing about food? And I was like, oh my gosh, it had been years since I thought about writing about food. I hadn't thought about writing about food since I was in college. But yeah, they 
you know, they told me about an internship at Eater LA that was open and I went and applied for it. And that's how I started writing about restaurants and food. Wow. And, you know, Sorry, you, that was really long. <laughs> no, I love it because it gives me a better sense of like, I knew you did all these things, but I didn't know how, you know, the chronology of, of everything you've done. And so now, now it, it all comes together. You've, you've stayed really invested and interested in pastry. What keeps you so excited about, about dessert? When I was in pastry school, I didn't have a, a, a clear sense of of what the North American public thinks of as pastry and and how it fits into their daily lives and how inessential it is. And then when I went to work in restaurant kitchens, they, you know, that's where my first sense of pastry as a business came out. And the at, at the time I was told by a number of restaurant people that the average restaurant sales for a rest- in restaurants in New York City was about 30%, which was considered high nationally. So like 30% of people that walk in the door of a restaurant are ordering dessert. And I just thought, oh my God, that's horrible. That's so low. <laughs> and, you know, you know, I'm devoting my whole life to this, but I also knew it from a practical standpoint where it just so happened that the first restaurant I worked at, the dessert sales were 90%. And that was because it was mostly a tasting menu and the restaurant was known for its desserts as this sort of like spectacle and it was something that the chef really promoted. And so I had this really early skewed introduction to how, how many desserts people would order at a restaurant. And then progressively in my career, I realized, wow, people are, just don't order dessert. They're always on a diet. They're always making excuses. They're too full. And I was the person at the end of the night, you know, all the, all the line cooks are cleaning up. It's 10, 11 p.m. The kitchen closes, but pastry stays open because people are having their after dinner drinks and then they're going to order dessert or you hope they're going to order dessert. And so you have all your mason floss, you have all of your beautiful cakes and like the souffle ingredients and all of the things that you have ready to, to go. And then they don't order dessert and you have to throw it all. And oh my gosh. I was crushed. I was constantly crushed when people didn't order dessert and you know, then you're, you know, walk home at one or two in the morning, walk like 50 blocks home and would just, just be bummed out the whole time. And, and after that experience that, you know, a few years of experiencing that, it just underlined for me, the labor that goes into, to pastry, I feel like is so much, can be so much greater than the labor that goes into mm-hmm. savory food. And I want to value that. I find it exciting just because it's, you know, pastry is, is so many things, has so many different ingredients and involves so much chemistry. There's so many different components and I feel like it intersects with a lot of different arts like architecture and the fine arts and creates emotion for a lot of people in ways that savory doesn't always. And so I appreciate it from that perspective too, but I always think about the person at the end of the night that's waiting to see if you're going to order a slice of cake or a custard and I just want to, I want to order it from them and make sure they feel appreciated. <laughs> I love that. You, you mentioned that you got that job at Eater LA after, you know, working in kitchens, working in product development. How did you transition? Because, you know, studying food history in college, of course, you have this bank of knowledge and then you have this wealth of experience of real restaurant labor and you have this like real knowledge, like culinary knowledge. And so how did that all translate when you ended up at Eater? 
it was a rough transition. I hope nobody goes back and reads my archives. I hope that just <laughs> I just want them to disappear forever. I, I mean, I, I was a terrible writer initially, and I and I, I was, but I was fortunate in that some of the, the people that I worked with and, and Eater at the time was very small and scrappy, and we were so there was so much competition. We were so. There was always this feeling like we have a chip on our shoulder because we're just a blog. And so we've got to really prove ourselves. And I don't know, I really glommed onto that. I really, that like, I don't know, I've also been sort of scrappy in my life and just like had to make things work. And I think that, that I identified with that. I identified with like work long hours and do everything and don't get paid any money because that's just how I... (laughs) That was my entire youth and early adulthood. So I don't how to do it. I don't think anyone should have to do that. But that side of things, that's how I started reporting. I remember, you know, we were always trying to be first on everything. And I was just, I was just really good at talking my way into restaurants and asking if I could talk to people and asking a lot of questions and being curious. And I don't know, all of that fortunately came pretty naturally to me because I didn't study journalism, but the parts of writing that didn't and sometimes still don't come naturally to me or just like the practice of putting sentences together and building a story. And I'm still, I think I'm always going to be learning that. I'm still learning that. I still feel like I struggle with it sometimes. But so it was this progression from Eater LA and then eventually LA Weekly called and said, we could pay you because I was working for free at Eater. And I said, wow, okay, yes, please pay me. And LA Magazine called and said, Yes, we're hiring and they paid a little bit better. Um, And then Eater came back to me after they got bought by Vox Media and said, well, we have more money because I basically said I'm not going back unless you can pay me a living wage. (laughs) So they did. And I moved. that's when I moved back to New York from L.A. just to do that. And while I was I mean, while I was sort of like cobbling together this new like going from restaurant industry to journalism, I was working many small part-time jobs. I was working in marketing. I was working in consumer product PR, which was just a very bizarre space and weird, (laughs) weird time in my life. And I was working as a private chef. And so I was doing a lot of different things at the same time. Oh, I was also doing farmer's markets on the weekends. I was selling products for people that made like pestos and tapenades and cheeses (laughs) and things like that. So yeah, I was, I was working many jobs all the time. <laughs> right. That's such a hustle. My God. Well, and you know, then you've been at Serious Eats and now at the Washington Post and it seems you're doing a bit more recipe work, right? In the last few years. Yeah. It's the first job. This is the first full-time job I've had where I'm doing recipe development and I'm so appreciative of it because I feel like it ties all of my interests and skill set together. And it was something I was looking for. It was why I left Eater. Eater at the time didn't publish recipes and they were really adamant about that. And, you know, I had pitched a number of, you know, avenues and ways for us to get into that space. And 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 they were they were shot down. And at the same time, I, I started getting contacted by other editors at other publications. And I was really curious about what it would be like to work for other New York publications. And so I went freelance for a year and that was frightening. And also, I learned a lot. I think I learned so much about, I learned so much more, interestingly, about editing during my time f- freelance writing for other editors than I did at Eater. And then the Washington Post posted a job for a newsletter writer. And I really didn't think 
the world needed another newsletter. (laughs) I still kind of of don't think the world needs another newsletter. It's shocking to me that people subscribe to my newsletter, but they, Joe Yonan, the editor there, sent me an email and said, you really should apply for this. And on the last day when the application was due, I just, (laughs) I remember I like went for a walk around the block with my dog and I thought like, if I wrote a newsletter, what what would it be like? And I wrote this application email and and I got the job after a nice. lo- long interview process. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you balance that now? Because you really are focused on the newsletter, but the newsletter is really intense the way you do it. It's Monday to Thursday. It's recipes, but it's also like a ton of variations on those recipes for people who have different needs or different allergies. And then also, you know, you're giving the context for the recipes as well, whether it's from a cookbook or it's from like your own understanding. And that seems like so much work. So how are you, how are you kind of balancing all of that now? And, and how has it been to have to be like really kind of relentlessly creative in, in putting out this newsletter all the time? Yeah, that's a good question. It, you know, it is a lot of work and I try to think about it as I manage the, you know, when I, I guess when I feel burned out on the writing part, I go into the kitchen and when Mm -hmm. I feel burned out on the kitchen. So I feel like they're, they're, it's using different parts of my brain, which is a weird way to say it, but (laughs) I need, sometimes I need, sometimes I need to sit down and type my thoughts out. And sometimes I need to go into a kitchen away from a screen and put my hands in something. And that balance is really, I think, really helpful for me and really good for me because I come up with ideas while I'm cooking and then vice versa. But I'm not developing, at first, at first, some some people I think still think that I'm developing four recipes a week. Like, no, that would be insane. Right. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm only developing one new recipe a week and I develop those recipes throughout the month. And then I hand in a batch of recipes at the beginning of the month and they go through an edit process and a testing process. And then they get shot. They're styled and shot by a great team, shot by photographer Ray Lopez. And I just love his photos. And I'm so grateful that I get to work with this, this team of people who like really help me remember that I have to keep, you know, I have to keep this thing going. You know, there are all these people that are sort of depending on me to keep this thing going. Otherwise, Like I so admire people like you that have your own motivation. I, (laughs) if I didn't know there were people waiting for my work in order to do their work, I don't think I would do anything. I think I would (laughs) stay in bed all day. And it's this fear of like letting people down that keeps me. I mean, I, yeah, I do. I do really enjoy my work and I'm really grateful I get to do it. How do you keep that fresh and provide so many substitutions too? Like, where did that idea come from? And and how do you, how do you kind of conceptually think about that? You know, like, w- how do you figure out where in the recipe there's room for variation and play? Yeah, I think that is something that came up organically as I was writing the newsletters. And it was initially in, inspired or prompted by the fact that the newsletter started kind of in the early days of the pandemic or like less than a year into the pandemic. And so people were still really concerned about going to the market more than once a week or more than once a month in some cases. And, you know, there was a lot more caution and there was still an availability issue. The Washington Post also reaches an international audience. And so when it was springtime for 
let's say Washington, D.C. It was not springtime in Perth, Australia. And so all of these, I had information coming at me from like many different like from many different sides. I knew initially, like from the very beginning of the newsletter, I wanted to offer as many meatless options as I could because it's just a way that I'm trying to eat myself. And so selfishly, I was wanting to challenge myself to think more broadly about the way I eat and how I can, let's say, satisfy my cravings for certain things and maintain a level of nutrition, but not always default to like meat as the center of the plate. I so I started doing that, building off of what I learned. I was a, I lived in a vegetarian co-op co in college for two or three years, and I learned so much from that crew of people. Shout out to the Trip Hammer Co-op. <laughs> I don't think it, I actually don't think it exists anymore, but it was a great, incredible group of people that were very committed to not being vegetarian and vegan and challenged my thinking as a person who grew up eating meat. That was like my first introduction to taking a vegetarian diet, a vegan diet very seriously. And I learned so much from them. I learned, I learned all like all of the building blocks of what I know about vegetarian cuisine from them. And when I started writing this newsletter, I was thinking a lot about that. And I was thinking about how much I wished I could still talk to those people. And then just decided, it just sort of like started to flow where I was like, all right, if I made this and if I looked at my, if, or I, if I got this recipe in my inbox and I thought, okay, this sounds good. Maybe I'll make it. But I'm looking in my pantry and I don't have, I don't know, let's say all-purpose flour. I'm out of all-purpose flour or I'm out of onions or whatever. Like, what would I do? And like, I think that most people who cook, who are very confident in the kitchen and like most people I, I happen to talk to like this, the way we, the way we're talking, I think we know these things intrinsically. I think we know, okay, if I don't have lemon juice, I can use white wine vinegar, you know? I can make that I can still I can make things work with these very obvious substitutions. But but I also have a lot of friends who don't know how to cook at all. And I think about them in the kitchen. I think about them holding their knife or I think about like, oh, if they saw this recipe, they would just assume they couldn't make it because they don't have rice in their pantry right now. And I'm just like, actually, maybe I can outline this in a way that's sort of easy to parse and hopefully not too obvious for all the people that know how to cook, but also gives people ideas if they're of have an allergy to something or if they find like cilantro doesn't taste good to them, you know, like what are the, what are the ways I can offer them ideas around that? And that has turned into this signature of the newsletter. And I get emails, I get like dozens of emails every day from people who are like, thank you so much for putting that in there. And it's something I didn't ever consciously, i like, didn't consciously start doing it. It just started to happen. And I'm glad it's resonating with people. Yeah, it's so interesting to find, you know, when you are so obsessed with food and you, you know, and you have kind of done all the trial and error over time. I mean, for me, like I've learned how to cook through trial and error. You've learned how to cook like in an actual formal setting, but like for it to come really naturally and that you you think about these things is so obvious. It is a really delicate balance in recipe writing to to speak to the people for whom it isn't a natural thing to you know, substitute, like, you know, I made a Sola recipe from Bon Appetit, like an eggplant adobo, and it had pork in it. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just, I'll substitute that with minced mushrooms and I'll just add more oil so that there's fat there. And like, but other people won't think of that. 
because they'll mm-hmm. just be like, oh, it has pork in it. If I don't want to eat meat, I, I'm just not going to make this. Like, you know, and so that's why I think that your that your your newsletter is so important because it really does show people that thought process. And I think once people start to start to learn that that like what can be substituted or like what can be replaced and like you know where there's room for adaptation then their regular cooking is just going to get better because they're they're going to start thinking that way too like basically you're like lending people your brain which is <laughs> yeah. which is like a really great like the way you do it is so cool and i love it because it like i yeah it's just it makes it so clear and so simple and, you know, I do think the Washington Post, maybe it probably becomes more natural to you guys to be a little more open to meatless food because Joe is, is, yeah. is like the guy writing the bean cookbook and the plant-based yeah. cookbook and everything. <laughs> yeah. So is it is it kind of understood at at the Post that that you guys do these kinds of adaptations or like what is the conversation like if you can give any insight into how you guys talk about you know eating less meat or or giving those options yeah I mean I think I mean definitely I think you should talk to Joe about it at some point but I I I don't (laughs) think there really aren't conversations like that I will I don't Joe is certainly never going to come out and say we can't publish this recipe because it uses this ingredient and this ingredient is problematic because whatever (laughs) you know he doesn't he's just not that kind of person he's a very open-minded person and he's also just not naturally a judgmental person I mean he's definitely the best boss I've ever had I'm not just saying that but I really (laughs) it's really why like it's it's one of two reasons why I'm still at the Washington Post I can say that and I so appreciate his openness but also in his it's that it's it's more that when we talk about recipes and we talk about what we're going to be making, he's so enthusiastic about his dishes and it comes across in his writing, of course. And I think that rubs up, rubs up on all of us in general. I think that that I think that approaching something from a place of enthusiasm rather than limitation is a real just like so encouraging. It feels more encouraging to me. So I wanted to ask you've lived in a few cities, how has that shaped your perspective on food and, and writing about food? Because, yeah, you grew up in Chicago, you moved to New York, you lived in L.A. Your, do your parents now are in Arizona? Yeah, they're in Tucson. Yeah. And I've been, I've been living with them in Tucson for the almost the entirety of the pandemic or almost two years now. And I will say, you know, the assumptions that I want that I want to say that maybe rural America makes of the coastal cities are entirely correct. <laughs> and I say that as, <laughs> yes, just from having lived in those cities and been in those bubbles and, and, and essentially still operating in those bubbles and then living in Tucson, which is a much smaller city. I mean, it's landlocked and it's also, I mean, it's, it's, it's West Coast, but it's Southwest and it has its own brand of politics. And I think it is a fascinating place to live if all, if you've only ever lived in very, very large cities, because it really outlines for me the ways in which I'm biased and the way, the way I, ca- I can't make assumptions about anything. I mean, the way it plays out in the newsletter is when I'm developing recipes, I do actually go to Walmart and look and see what 
ingredients are available there on a regular basis because Walmart is the biggest supplier of food in the country. And it is still where most people are shopping. And if an ingredient can't be found there, it's a, there's a good chance that the person reading the newsletter might not make that recipe. And I want to make sure things are available to people. But I also, big guiding light from the beginning of the newsletter and when I first, the newsletter concept was not my idea. That was Liz Seymour's idea. She's a managing editor at the Post, system managing editor at the Post. But the way I conceived of executing her idea of this daily news, daily recipe newsletter was that if it, you know, if it was under the brand voraciously, like what does eating voraciously mean? And what it means to me is mm-hmm. this really open-minded sense of what you're eating. And so I didn't, I didn't want it to fit into, I didn't want to just make like whatever, 30 minute pasta dinners every night. Obviously, you know, I eat a variety of foods and I eat from a variety of cultures and I wanted to represent all of that too. So it's a balance. It's a balance between understanding that not everyone lives in big cities. And I I do hear from people who live in like really small towns. And I constantly ask them like, you know, what's it like? (laughs) I want to know more. There's someone that emailed me who lives in a really remote place in Wyoming in a mountain town. It can only go to a store once a month. And they just describe it as so peaceful. And honestly, that just sounds amazing. Sounds amazing to me. I love that you go to Walmart because while obviously I'm like, Walmart sucks, is evil. (laughs) But at the same time, I understand that like, yeah, being here in San Juan, it's like that is, you know, the, the, the Walmart in San Thursday is always packed. And they have a surprising variety that I think maybe if you never go to a Walmart, you don't know that they have it. Like I found Brooklyn Deli curry ketchup. I found like Mm -hmm. Woodstock Farms pickles. They have a non-dairy section. Like whenever I have to go for something random, like a bike pump or a bike tube, or I I go and I look at all the food. And it is really interesting to see that it's actually not at all what people would assume they also have like local foods that they'll sell too. Like they mm-hmm. adapt to what the culture is where they are, which it, it's not, it's not like a black and white thing where they're, you know, forcing craft and <laughs> foods upon right. people or something like that. It's, it's really, it's a lot more um, nuanced than that, which is super interesting. I think someone should write about how Walmart does food buying. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And yeah, I want to reiterate, I go and look at what Walmart sells. I don't actually shop at Walmart, but no, no, no. I know, you, it's okay I if know you do. <laughs> that a lot of people and I, and, and, but, but it's because I have a wide variety of places I can shop where I live. Of course. Tucson is not such a small city that there aren't dozens and dozens of markets, but I respect the fact that a lot of people shop there because they do have really great prices. I mean, really, yeah. it's a really affordable place to buy food particularly if you're feeding a large family. And I can see if I was feeding a large family, I would definitely go there and buy, you know, the extra large bag of chips because, man, that's a good deal. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, the food costs are insane right now. Like everyone's doing reels and TikToks about how much less food they can buy right now. Gas is super expensive. There's just... 
there's these are the things you have to think about when you are a recipe writer is is really what are people actually going to have and what are they going to have access to and what's going to be affordable and i i'm going to do a pantry series for the newsletter too so i'm like i'm thinking about that but also i just by nature of living in a small city on an island have limited options i don't have maitake mushrooms as much as i would love to eat a maitake a lot. I can't get them, you know, (laughs) like I, I, you know, can't always even get organic tofu. I have to get like just non-GMO tofu and like, you know, and these are such little things, but they're things that like I really took for granted all the time. And I think a lot of people take for granted all the time is when you're living in New York or something is that, you know, you can go to like a glorified one of those glorified gentrified bodegas and get like yeah. Miyoko's vegan butter. And like, I have to make a very special trip if I want to do that. Like there's so many things I have to consider when making decisions that I I never used to think about. And it's, I think it actually makes, it makes things way more interesting if you do do that. If you, if you think about like, how can I break something down to its absolute essentials and still make it really, really good? Like that's, I think where, where, where you get to change people's thinking about what it means to cook at home and, and, and how, how delicious and how accessible that can be. Exactly. And I, and I want to, so I want to go back slightly to something yeah. like that point, but something we were talking about earlier, which is that this idea of giving people these other options and substitution suggestions opens the door for them to learn about how they want to cook and learn about like, learn, I mean, obviously learn about these options, but I think it's also, it was also for me me kind of like a rejection of this notion that I think food media has had for a really long time that you must make the recipe exactly as written or it might, or it won't work. Like, like, I think there was a lot of steering people away from trying things a different way because then they're going to come back to the publication and say, this recipe didn't work, you know, and there's a lot of, I think that there is a lot of almost like satirical cases of this right? Where people are writing in and being like, you know, I made this meatloaf, except I didn't use any meat and it didn't work, you know, and it's like, okay, well, obviously it wouldn't work, but there are ways that you can make substitutions. And and I think that it's also giving people permission to trust their instincts a little bit. Like, I don't think anyone, I don't know, I I, I guess I don't make any recipe exactly as written usually. And maybe that's because I'm more confident in the kitchen, but I can also see my friends who are as competent in the kitchen looking at a recipe and saying, well, it's telling me to add a whole teaspoon of salt. You know, maybe I don't like it that salty. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to add a whole <laughs> teaspoon right now. You know, I can see them making their own judgment calls. And I want to give them permission to do that because I think that's when you feel empowered in the kitchen, you feel more confident. And that's when you open the door to sort of a more exciting cooking life, I think. Of course. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, how do you define abundance? (laughs) You helpfully like sent these questions in advance. And I've been thinking about this for a while now. And I think, I think just coming I mean, I still feel like we're in a, we're in a pandemic and I have felt very closed off from my friends and family, some other family that I'm not living with. And I felt disconnected from so the social environment. And so I mm-hmm. I think of abundance as as eating with other people, as like really sharing a meal with people and relishing the experience of 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 talking to them, whether it's about the food or something else. But it makes me think of 
I love that. Just a, ta- a table full of food, but also full of people. I miss the people. Yeah. Well, for you, is cooking a political act? Well, I think, yeah, I think any kind of consumption under, in a capitalist society is political, can be political. But I also think that sometimes when I'm cooking, and this is, again, before the pandemic, when I was cooking for people, I was cooking out of love. I was cooking because I wanted to make them happy. So maybe I wasn't always conscious of the decisions I was making in terms of where I was buying my food or what I was buying or what I was cooking or whether I was cooking on gas or electric, whether I was cooking in a stainless steel pot or aluminum, like all of these potential decisions were fading into the background. But in general, it is a political act. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy. 